Welcome, ladies and gents. John Mueller here, your buddy John. I've got a great guest for today's show. He is a Kentucky Fried guitar picking fool. You may know him as a Kentucky headhunter, Greg Martin. And we're really excited to have him. Met him a while ago at uh, Skypack Center in Bowling Green, Kentucky. We're doing our winter dance party show there. And he was gracious enough to bring a 1957 Strat for us to look at after the show. And it was, uh, it was incredible. <laughs> we'll talk about that. The Headhunters recorded quite a few albums back in the 80s and 90s and all the way up till now. And of course, picking on Nashville really put them on the map. It won the uh, 1990 Country Music Association Album of the Year Award and also won the Vocal Group of the Year Award. They won a Grammy for Best Country Performance by a Duo or Group with Vocal. And in 1991, they won the Country Music Association Vocal Group of the Year. we got so much to talk about. I don't want to keep blabbing here, so let's bring him on now. Please welcome Greg Martin from the Kentucky Headhunters. How are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing great, John, and greetings from Kentucky. <laughs> now, what's, what, what city do you live in, Kentucky? I live in Glasgow, Kentucky, which is um, south-central Kentucky. I'm about 35 miles from Bowling Green, where I met you uh, February 2019. Or no, when was that? When did, no, no, it was 2008. No, no, it was last year. It was, right? la it was last year. Yeah, it was right on the yeah. uh, anniversary, the February 2nd. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. That was great. That was that's a beautiful, beautiful uh, hall there. What was that? The Bowling Green... Um, Kentucky. Sky Pack, yeah, yeah. We we call it Sky Pack. Sky Southern Pack, Kentucky yeah. Farming Arts Center. Yeah, you guys were fabulous. Every, you know, the, um, well, I, I'm sure your, your your listeners know this, but you know, you guys are class. Every one of you. And well, you were you were super classy. I was. I had never met you before. I, I want to tell the listeners about this story. We were um, doing this <laughs> our show with the symphony behind us, which is always fun. And then um, we go out in the lobby to. Uh, sign our merchandise or whatever and there's this guy standing over next to the table with a freaking what was it 1957 fender stratocaster i mean it was an actual yes. guitar that buddy holly may have played <laughs> i mean it was just yeah it was like uh vintage oh it was just beautiful and he actually uh, greg let us hold it and everything it was amazing and uh so that was so cool of you i i really uh just really appreciated that because that was uh man oh it was my pleasure, and if I had worked it out and been smarter about it, I would have got down there earlier and let you play it during the show. But, uh, <laughs> that would have been I, awesome. I, I, I would, you can't hurt a Stratocaster, as you know. You can beat those things around. <laughs> you yeah. know, they, 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 they keep going. But uh, I, that, that was kind of my intention to get down there earlier than I did. But uh, when I got to the – for the listeners, when I got to Skypack, uh, the guard – kind of knew who i was once i explained i'm sure and i got and and you guys were it wasn't very long before you were to go on stage calls get ready to happen i said well can you just take this strat and put it up for right now but it won't take it to the seat i could they probably think <laughs> yeah. i was packing a gun it was, i think it was in a gig bag i think and they probably thought i was carrying a gun you know or something <laughs> crazy and uh, he 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 was nice enough to take it back there. And then I brought it. Uh, I picked it up when I met you guys at the merch table. You know, oh, it was so, so cool. I was like, yeah, you don't want to leave that uh, valuable guitar in your uh, car trunk or something. You know? <laughs> oh no, I've got a little story about that too. Whenever it's uh, right to tell it, I got a good story about how you should never leave a guitar in your truck or your car. 
<laughs> yeah, I uh, I was told that by uh, Nicky Sullivan, uh, one of the Buddy Holly's former crickets. He he, he lost that uh, what was it, the ES one seventy five that you see on one of the uh, the Chirping Crickets album, and uh, he got that stolen yep. on tour by leaving it in his car. <laughs> and he well, t- I'll just go ahead and tell you my story now, since we're talking about the Strat, because I mean we'll get off onto other stories, and I yeah. I'm like a squirrel jumping from limb to limb anyway, so just bear with me. No problem. <laughs> so, back around 2000, 2001, the Headhunters happened to play a gig in Glasgow, which we, at that point, we had never played Glasgow very much, but we played a private deal at Glasgow. Yeah. And uh, so we were home that weekend. Well, the next day, which I'm pretty sure was a Sunday, I had a um, session at the local studio, I was working on a project with some friends. So I took the 57 Strat and a, uh, a 50s Les Paul Jr. I went and done some overdubs. So, you know, I, I'd been out on the road, you know, for about three days before we came to Glasgow. So you know how it is. You're, you're just a little bit washed. You're a little bit tired. But yes. You, you know, you're road burnt. You know how this is. I, I mean, do. You know it really well. And uh, after I got done with my session, I came home, and it's one of these nights I said, well, okay, I'm going to go and watch a little TV, and I'll unload these guitars later. So I come in to the den, I turn on Nick at night, and next thing you know, it's the next morning, and I wake <laughs> up, I'm on the couch downstairs, and I'm going, oh, wow, okay. So, <laughs> well, where'd that night go? Right. <laughs> so I go out to the van to get the guitars, open it up, and I go, okay, there's the junior. Where's the strat? <laughs> no. So what happened, the, the strat was in a, uh, it was in a road case, not yeah. a road case. It was actually a gig bag. It was in a gig bag, a tweed gig bag at that. Right. Of all, this neighborhood is a very laid back neighborhood. Nothing ever happens. Well, when I got out of the van, I didn't lock the van because I was going to go back and get the stuff. I fell asleep. I go back out. Somebody had ravaged the neighborhood, oh. and they grabbed my strat, and there was an old computer in a bag, which wasn't really worth much at the time, and they took it. But it took me a, about an hour to figure out what had happened, because I'm going, well, okay, I must have left the strat at the studio. And then I'm going, you know, in the beginning, I went, okay, then it all starts adding up that somebody had stolen that guitar oh. and got my computer. Oh. I mean, the funny thing is, when I opened up the back door of the van, there was this little alligator Gibson case unlatched. I'm going, well, now, why did I do that? You know, why would I have done that? And, you know, this is when I'm putting everything together. They didn't take the, didn't take the Les Paul Jr., which was, uh, I don't know, at the time, it was worth a little money, you know. Sure, but, yeah. uh, so I started freaking out. Okay. As you would, losing oh, yeah. a 57 Strat. There again, the computer was about had it anyway, so I wasn't too worried about that. So I started uh, calling, you know, after calling the studio and knowing what had happened, you know, I called the police, and then I started putting posters up all around Glasgow <laughs> and started calling dealers, vintage dealers I knew all over the country. Yeah. You know, George Bruin, uh, Guitar Emporium in Louisville, uh, rumble seat and different people I, I knew from the, the vintage world. And, you know, for about a week and a half, nothing turned up. Nobody said anything. Yeah. 
nothing, nobody said anything. But this line here that we were talking about earlier, this is my studio line. It was working good back then. I get a call one afternoon, a message from a guy and said, hey, this is uh, so-and-so Smith. And I saw your poster at the Minute Mart on Happy Valley Road. And I think I know where your guitar is. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Said, okay. Well, I start calling that number back that he left and no, he never answered, never answered. And, uh, and I thought, oh man, somebody's just doing, messing with me, you know, sure. my heart kind of sunk. But one afternoon I was in the studio down here, phone rang and it was him. He said, oh no, man, this phone, I live in a motel and, uh, I, I rent a room up here cause I work, you know, uh, like a, a highway job or something, whatever. And he says, uh, I, you know, I can't answer the phone when you call. And uh, he just called and we started talking. And, and and he told me the story about this family that lived about two miles from here. They were, <laughs> they were at this little creek one day fishing. It's a very shallow creek at the time because uh, it was uh, real dry that summer. Yeah, and they saw they saw the tweed case on a sand barge with a little water around it, and they drug it in, and it was the strat. Oh my God! Somebody, so... somebody threw it over a bridge about oh, two miles. God, yes. that is oh. so. It gets crazier. So, you know, I uh, talked to him, and I go. Uh, okay, you know, I didn't know. You know, he told me where he, where he was at, what motel. So the bass player and the headhunters at the time, Anthony Kenny, he wanted to go with me. So he puts a gun under the seat. (laughs) (laughs) We we think we're getting set up. We go grab this guy. We go grab this guy. And then we go out to the country and we pull up to this shack. I kid you not, Johnny. The shack was about ready to fall in. The guitar was probably worth more than the house. It's the truth. I'm not saying anything against these people. No, no. God bless them. It's like, it was like grapes of wrath or something. Yeah. And but we walk on the porch and there's the guitar sitting on a washing machine, <laughs> and, and and it's just laying on top. You could see where the case was wet. They tell me the story. I pick up the guitar, and you know it. It did get a little damp. It's got a little discolor. Yeah. From um, from where it did a little water did seep into the case, and the vibrato bar was broke off. But when I got it home, uh, you know, I, well, immediately I thanked them and listened to their story. And I went, well, these people tell me the truth. So I gave them some money. So uh, thank sure. you for being yeah. Yeah, I, I, I grabbed, I, you know, gave, gave uh, Mr. Smith some money. And I can't think of the other family's name. They're not even there now. The house is not even there. Yeah. Uh, it, it's long gone. So I paid, I paid them and, and I went on, took, brought the guitar home, plugged it in. It still worked. Um uh, <laughs> I was able to have a uh, luthier drill the vibrato out, and we got the vibrato back in, and it worked perfect. Of course, when my wife looked at the guitar, it was it's pretty beat, as you know, and she said, "Well, it don't look much different to me," <laughs> you know. <laughs> but every all of that happened because one fateful night, I come in too lazy to grab my guitars out of the case. And and or out of the van, and come in and watch TV, fall asleep, and then lock the van, and someone stole the <laughs> yeah. guitar. 
they got my strat. They got my strat. Yeah, you know. But a happy ending ultimately. Right? That's pretty cool. It was a happy ending. It was a happy ending. And let me tell you another crazy story. Do you know who Jeannie C. Riley is? It sounds very familiar. She sang Harper Valley PTA. Right, 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 right. Yeah. But she she's a friend of my wife and me, and she called me one day and said, "Greg, the Lord's put you on my heart. I don't know why." But he directed me to a, a verse in the Bible. And I, I'm sorry, to, I can't tell you what, what verse it is now. But she said, the only thing I know to tell you is be merciful to the poor. And this was about a week before I found that guitar. Oh, wow. As soon as, as, soon as I saw those people, I went, oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this hey, somebody knows more than I do. Yeah, so like I say, I gave them some money. And uh, hopefully those people... Whatever I gave them helped them out a little bit, you know. Yeah, so very cool. It worked out. So yeah. How, how many so there you go. There's my first story. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And is that the same strat that you brought to the show, or is that a different yep. one? Wow. No, it's the same strat. That's it the one you had in your hand. That's amazing because it it looked uh, really good shape to me. I mean, especially in 1957, I, I thought it was beautiful. How many uh, guitars do you have, Greg? Not as many as I did at one time. I mean, I had a batch, especially a lot of old ones. I still have a few, probably 20. Ah, no, no, I've got about 30, about 30 plus guitars now. That's pretty good. I mean, at one time, that's not bad, but one time, John, I had I had a, a lot, and I had a big collection of uh, vintage Fender amps. But as I've gotten older, it's just harder to keep that stuff up, you know, and... Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's funny, yeah. I've got about 14 guitars, and I really only play about three or four of them. <laughs> so, right. I'm like, what right. am I doing with these other things that are just taking up space? And it's those damn cases that come with them that take up a lot of space, you know? It's like... That's right. But yeah, I've got about I've got about 30 plus guitars. I still have a quite a few Fender amps, and I've got some Marshall amps. Uh, uh, I've got an old Magnetone nice. amp, but you... You can appreciate a magnetome because Buddy Holly used one. Absolutely, bit, I yeah. And um, probably a couple of Gibson amps and stuff like that. But I've got them scattered all over the country. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. That's cool. So um, I saw on your resume something that I, mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you a question about because it was a kind of a similar big deal for me. It said uh, you had an, a, an older brother that was an influence on you as far as getting into guitar and stuff. And, and yes. can you tell me a little bit about that? Because my brother it was the same situation for me where he was, I don't know how older your brother was, but mine was about nine years older than me. And, uh, same thing, about the same thing. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. I, I, I grew up, you know, just seeing him being bands and stuff. And I just thought it was, he was like <laughs> James Dean to me, you know, <laughs> I, I just thought he was the coolest thing. And then, um, it kind of really, made a big impression on me. I was curious about your relationship. Oh, Gary. Exactly. Yeah. My brother, Gary he passed away in 2013. Oh yeah. He was a hero to me. And, uh, well, it, it, there, there was this, uh, age difference. Yeah. So, so when we were younger, we didn't hang a whole lot together. You know, uh, he had his older friends and, um, yeah, same here. So, but I really, I really looked up to Gary a lot. And, uh, my dad played music, but he worked a regular job. So he never pursued music, you know, and he played more in the old Ernest Tubb style and things like that. Cool. And that, that was his deal. Of course, Gary, when I, I, some of my earliest 
recollections of uh, music was living on Sixth Street in Louisville, which was a mixed neighborhood. Yeah, and you know, you, on one side you'd hear uh, the Drifters and the Coasters and maybe Bobby Bland, BB King, and things like that, and then you you might hear uh, you'd hear Elvis. Uh, Buddy, Buddy Holly, the Everly Brothers, you know. Sure. <laughs> then you hear Hank Williams. You hear all this mix of music. But my brother, some of the earliest things I remember is his uh, little record collection uh, on Sixth Street. I would go listen to his uh, recordings of the Everly Brothers and and Buddy Holly and Elvis Presley and things like that. And and Gary, probably in the '60s, started playing in rock bands, and he. He played quite a bit, but at one point around 1966, he decided it was time for him to um, maybe pursue a career in something else that was more solid, something more stable. So yeah, he, yeah. So he went to California and learned uh, learned how to work on at that point typewriters and adding machines, which was a big thing. Yeah. Now they're I guess they're they're gone now I guess, yeah. as far as I know. But uh, you know, and then when he come back, he still played in bands. But in 1968, Gary got out of uh, rock. Something triggered, something triggered uh, him getting into bluegrass music, and he saw that I had an interest in guitar. Because whenever he see, we moved from Louisville in 1966 to Metcalf County, and Louisville is a pretty big town. I'm sure you've actually played there before. Yeah, I've been to there. Mm-hmm. And. Um, my dad got fed up with Louisville in 66. He quit his job at Fawcett Printing Company. I was in the seventh grade at the time. He said, we're going to Midcap County. We, we always called it the country, you know? Yeah. And, said, well, we're, and so we moved to Midcap County. And all I had when I moved down was a little, a few records, a stereo that one side only worked, had an AM radio where I could listen to WCFL and WLSI Chicago and then the the local AM stations during the day. And there was an old Stella guitar upstairs uh, that belonged to the house. And I would pick it up the strings. You could, you could shoot arrows off of it. It was terrible. <laughs> but Gary, Gary stayed in Louisville. He didn't move down with us. He stayed in Louisville. But whenever he would come down, he would uh, bring a guitar and I would pick up guitars, not showing what I'd learned, and he was pretty impressed with it, you know. Nice. And he very cool. And then, then in '68, when he went into bluegrass, he gave me a very, I wish I still had it a, um, a mid '50s Gretsch Silverjet. Oh wow! You know what that is? Yeah, oh, sure yeah. do, sure do. Yeah. He gave me that a little magnetone amplifier. Oh. And his record collection. <laughs> and his record collection had everything from Lonnie Mack, Travis Womack, to Elvis. To, to, but there was some Buddy Brunswick recordings in there, you know, and some of the things he was. Well, yeah, he was on Brunswick, correct? Is that right? Yeah, Brunswick or, and then uh, Choral Records were some yeah, of the single releases. Yeah, Choral. Yeah. yeah. That's right. That's right. So I got his record collection, and that was pretty much the start. And Gary was just real encouraging. And another really cool story, Gary worked at a pawn shop in Louisville. Nice. And, and he knew that in 68, 69, I was just totally starting to get into blues. I was getting into Eric Clapton, uh, getting into B.B. Um, King and uh, Michael Bloomfield. 
and you know, plus the rock and roll things that were going on. And uh, he knew I was just wanting a Les Paul really bad. Yeah. One afternoon, a gentleman came into this. Another guitar I wished I had too, by the way, folks. He, this guy comes into the pawn shop one day, Stan's pawn shop. And he, uh, he was out of work and he wanted to do a pawn, a 1958 Les Paul special. Sure. Well, Gary, Gary questioned him and said, well, would you be interested in doing some trading or selling? So Gary got his number and we went out to Oklahoma, which was a suburb of Louisville. And, uh, Gary worked out a trade with him. I, we traded him a Baldwin, uh, semi-electric guitar, like a 335 and some cash. And I got that, that yellow TV, yellow, uh, Les Paul special. Oh, 58. Wow. Beautiful. So Gary was, you know, he helped me get that and just, just always very encouraging. Only thing Gary said I could do was play bluegrass, and that's the God's truth. I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> isn't that but, uh, uh, that's a requirement if you live in Kentucky, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. Now, now, I can play the Merle Travis stuff. The Merle Travis stuff always came natural. I nice. don't know if that's just something in, our, in the water around here, but... Man, bluegrass or flat picking like Clarence White and Tony Rice and you know Hard Dan do, Prairie, yeah. that stuff right there, man. Them guys never stop. I have to play a phrase and I've got to pull back and go, "Where am I going next?" You yeah, know. Yeah. So were you were you, you were know. you self taught at this age? I mean, when you're first starting out, or did you take like uh, formal lessons? No, self taught, self taught. Uh, when we lived in Louisville, saw the Beatles in '64. Of course, I was always around music because of my brother. My family listened to country. My brother listened to rock. Yeah. And uh, But we first saw the Beatles on Sullivan in 64. At first, I didn't know what to make of it because yeah. my parents were like, their mouths were open like. What is this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's this, you know? <laughs> and so uh, there was a, it's a truth, man. It was. So one of my brothers got a plastic guitar, and I actually had a Mel Bay book that belonged to my, I guess my dad or my brother. I actually learned how to play my first chords on that plastic guitar. Wow. And uh, you could make, it, it sounded terrible, but you could make a little music with it. Sure. So my, so the brother that owned it one day got mad at me. He busted it out in the front yard. It was in a, a million pieces. So. <laughs> At that point, I resorted to, you know, like going upstairs and playing Gary's guitars, you know, things like that. But yes, uh, I learned my first chord. A couple of things. There was a guy at school by the name of uh, Gary Kenemuth. He showed me some of my first guitar licks. Like one of the first things I learned was uh, uh, What I Say by Ray Charles, that little riff. You oh, know? yeah, yeah. And then another another fellow down the street showed me a few little blues riffs and some Beatles. Then I went on, you know, to, to Mel Bay and then just, just pick things out by listening to the radio. And, sure. Yeah, self-taught. Uh, cool. I did take a few lessons around 1980, some classical lessons, which I can't play classical, but it really solidified uh, my use of the thumb. So when I do the, the Chad Atkins and the uh, Merle Travis thing, it, oh, it, sure. it taught me a couple of things doing that. You know, yeah. I can't read music. Can't read. I can't. Just a number chart. That's about it. Well, that's all no. you need. It's all you need for our music. <laughs> it comes from the heart, man. I'm not, I wish I was Larry Carlton. I can't do it. Man. <laughs> <laughs> he can do both. Yeah, yeah. 
So, okay, so in your teens, you started, did you start forming a band? Like, is that the Itchy Brother that was originally uh, your band called the Itchy Brothers? Well, about the, yeah, yeah yes. Uh, Richard Fred, Richard Fred Young, the, who, who I play with in the Headhunters now, the yeah. first guys I ever played with. We still play together to this day, as you know. Um, when my brother gave me the guitar and the records and the amp in 68, oddly enough, I had went to Louisville the weekend my brother got married and my cousin took me to see a band in Louisville that was big at the time called Elysian Field. And I, John, the only thing I can tell you when these guys played, there was some kind of feeling I had came over me that this is what I need to do is play in a band. Yeah. And I mean, it was almost like a supernatural thing. I mean, it's, I don't mean to get too deep, but it just really was. Yeah. And, uh, and I went back that weekend, uh, back to the, Edmonton, Midcap County, and thinking, man, I want to play music. This is what I really want to do. And I didn't have a didn't have a good guitar yet. And about that time, Gary gave me the guitar. And about just about two or three weeks later, my cousin who rode the uh, school bus with me, Larry Sullivan, starts telling me about a new guy that was at our school named Richard Young. He says, uh. Uh, Richard is here because his dad needs to do some student teaching, and so they've got him transferred over here. We're going to do a 4-H talent show in November. This has been 68, and uh, we'd want to know if you'd want to, be, to play guitar. So I met Richard Young down at the lunchroom at the middle school one afternoon, and we jammed on Hey Jude, <laughs> Born to be Wild, um, Maybe the rip from Inagata de Vida, <laughs> <laughs> Revolution, maybe. Sure. Uh, you know, and a couple of things. And we said, yeah, we can do this. We can do this. And we did, yeah, yeah. we did the talent show together, you know. And uh, Richard said, well, you know, me and my brother Fred, we've got a band with our cousin. You know, would you like to come over and jam? And I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so, so around November of 68, I started playing with Richard and Fred. And uh, that was my, really, my first official band was, now, at that time, this was Itchy Brother, but we went through several names. When I joined their band, they were called The Truce, T-R-U-C-E, you know, and it went from Truce to Aftermath to Mandrake Velvet, and then eventually we settled on Itchy Brother. How did you come up with the name Itchy Brother? (laughs) Well, Itchy Brother was a cartoon character. There was a cartoon back in the 60s called King Leonardo and Friends that would come on Saturday. And King Leonardo, he was the uh, king of Bongo Congo. That was his territory. (laughs) Nice. And his evil brother, his evil brother, see, King Leonardo was a lion. His evil brother was Itchy Brother, and he would hang with Biggie Rat. Ah. And they were always trying to overthrow the kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> what a great thing to call a band. I love it. And we just decided it was a cool name. I, I think I brought it up one day and, and we ran with it. And uh, you can look, anybody listening to the podcast can, can look that up. Just look up uh, King Leonardo and friends. There's all kind of uh, little clips from the 60s. Uh, and that's exactly where we got it from right there. So cool. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, man. That was the first band I ever played with right there. And you guys were together for a long time before uh, before the whole Headhunters thing materialized, right? I mean, you're uh, at least 10 or 12, 15 years, something like that? 
it's been a really, it was a really strange journey, Johnny. Um, we started playing together in 68 and, uh, we made some headway when we were in school. We win this talent contest around 1970 and we go to Nashville and we play on this TV show. You know, it was really pretty cool, you know, for, for kids that could barely play, but we, we, we were able to go do that. And we played together all through high school. When I graduated, my intentions was to stay in Midcalf County, but my parents, what happens when dad moved us down? He could never get a solid job mm. because he was a union uh, journeyman in printing. And uh, the company down, the big company down here at the time wouldn't hire him because he was union. So dad would, he had to end up going back to Louisville and working and then driving back and forth on weekends. And and my mother got, we, we moved out to this house. Dad bought a house out in uh, Cedar Flats right outside of Edmonton. They never could hit decent water. It, we All we had was black sulfur water. Oh. You know? and, and my mother finally in 1972 said, I've had enough of this. And when I graduated, we went back to Louisville. So I had to quit Itchy Brother. Uh, we weren't called Itchy Brother right then. Yeah. But I had, to, I had to leave the band for a little bit. And uh, so we moved back to Louisville. And I played a little music. Worked at a factory for a minute, which I hated. Then I ran an electronic store, which I kind of liked because I was dealing with stereos. And yeah, creative. Actually, yeah, it, it wasn't bad at all. Selling records, and I had a guitar always with me in there. When there was nobody there, I'd play. You know, <laughs> they, they let me do that. Nice. So, uh, but in 1977, I actually moved back down here and started playing with Richard and Fred again. You know, so we actually started writing songs and we really worked hard at it and we got interest from Swan Song Records in New York, which was run by Led Zeppelin. That was their label. Um, one of the, the Swan Song employees came down to hear us in Louisville once the spring of 1978. And it was just really, really into what we were doing. And, um, he had a meeting with Peter Grant, which was Zeppelin's manager, but nothing, unfortunately, during all this, uh, Robert, uh, not Robert Plant, but uh, Peter John, Grant, their manager. Uh, uh, oh, John Bonham. John, John Bonham, Bonham, Bonham passed you're away, right. yeah. John Bonham passed away. Yeah. And so that threw the whole Led Zeppelin swan song deal in, in the disarray of, you know, so we never, never really, uh, just never got to record, you know. Sure. Yeah, but if you go on the internet, you know, the, 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 the Wikipedia, yeah. it actually men it mentions Itchy Brother up there on, on bands that they were going to sign, but we just never never got that far. Wow. And, and at that time, I was married. I needed a job. So I took a I took a job with Ronnie McDowell out of Nashville. I'm not sure if you know who Ronnie I is. I sure do. He, uh, he sang the voice of Elvis in the... Uh, the That's Kurt, right. Kurt Russell Elvis yeah. movie. Yeah. That's absolutely that's right, and he he could do Ronnie McDowell uh, could do anything, man. He could do Elvis. He could do any rock and roll from that period. So it was a great experience because when I joined Ronnie's band in '81, he was having some pretty big country hit records at the time. So we were on tour with Don Williams, uh, doing dates with Hank Williams Jr. We were doing dates with did two or three tours with Conway Twitty. Wow. Worked for a lot of folks. So it was a great experience. Playing. I, I was with Ronnie eight and a half years. 
Wow. So there was eight and a half. I was I was actually doing that. That's where I met Doug Phelps, who would later become a headhunter. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Was uh, Hank Williams Jr. A, a wild man on the road? The first time I met him was really brief. This would have been probably 85 or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it was just a brief meeting. He, you know, we, we, we had played our set with Ronnie and he came, he pulled in a limo and he came over and shook our hands and went and done his thing. Of course, the crowd was really wild. Oh, and, sure. Know, yeah. McDowell and, and Hank were not really a compatible act, you know, really. Right, I mean, right. I, it really got I me. Mean, I, we also opened up for David Allen Cole one time, which I thought we were shot, you know, but we made it through. <laughs> but, but anyway, you know, you know, fast forward to uh, 1990 when the head owners start touring with Hank. Uh, yeah, he was a little, you know, Hank was rowdy a bit back then, you know, but... <laughs> Especially on stage, on stage. Now, off stage, Hank is very introverted, and he's very, very just a sweet guy, man. Nice, nice he can be. It's very cool. You know? Yeah, yeah. Very cool. So, okay, we, so then you guys, um, you get the attention uh, from Mercury Records around 1989 or so, and that was just based on a yep. demo that you guys had done. You weren't even really uh, intending that to be an nah. actual, actual released album. Is that right? Right. Well, after the deal with Itchy Brother, Swan Song, Zeppelin, you know, we were all pretty much disheartened, and you know, and you know, we like we were so close, but yeah. it didn't quite grab the ring, you know. So I went to work for Ronnie, and about 1986, uh, you know, I just got thinking about man, I'd sure like to play with my cousins again. They're my they're my second cousins, yeah, and. And I, you know, I said, well, can we put a side band together? You know, maybe we can just play some little coffee houses or little clubs around. And they were into it. And initially, we approached our other cousin, Anthony Kenny, who was an itchy brother. And he had just gotten married, and he really just wasn't into it. You know, he said, no, I mean, I've got a job now. Yeah, yeah. I don't think, you know, I've got a family. I think I'm just going to do this, you know. And uh, so I, I suggested Doug Phelps to come up and um, so one afternoon I don't know I think it was around April 86 they come up to my house we have a jam session in my basement and Richard and you know they check him out because it was hard not to play with Anthony because he was our cousin yeah and so at that time I go yeah man we can we can do this and so we played in my basement three or four times then we moved it out to the old practice house and we initially were doing blues, a little rockabilly, rocked up country things. Yeah. You know, and then, uh, you know, as we went along, we would write songs. Then one night, Doug brought his brother Ricky Phelps up just to hear us. And Ricky got up and sang a couple songs with us, and we went, okay, this is pretty wild. This is a whole different slant. So, we dragged Ricky Phelps into the band who was tired of being in a band or, or pursuing music because he'd been through the ringer as well. But he said, okay, all right, let's do it. So we record a little 45 record of Walk Softly and Old Lone For Me. These are not the versions that ended up on Picking on Nashville. They're very archaic sounding now. Yeah. But we went into Acuff Rose, the old Acuff Rose studio in Nashville before they tore it down and we recorded these things pretty much live, you know, and, 
this lady that knew Ricky from Ricky singing in Nashville said, I'll pay for a 45 record if you do walk softly on this heart of mine. Cause she loved the way Ricky did it. Yeah. So we came up with an arrangement of it and we went into Acre Froze and we released the little 45 and nothing really happened with that. But we just kept playing Bowling Green, Nashville. I think we played Louisville one time. And uh, one night, Doug and I were playing Ronnie McDowell in Richmond, Virginia at Duke's. It's just a little club. And uh, it was like it was like Dennis the Menace's dad. Do you remember Dennis the <laughs> yeah, Menace? Yeah, yeah. Well, you remember his dad, how he wore the glasses and all yeah, that stuff? Yeah, yeah. We got talking to him, and uh, so, well, this, this guy likes blues. So we took him on the bus. We played him a couple of our practice house tapes of the headhunters early headhunters and he was very enthralled by it and he liked it and we kept in touch and initially then it wasn't very much longer he gave us enough money to go into uh, sound shop studios and cut picking on nashville he loaned us the money to do that wow just gave us the money we never signed paper one i think he got, i can't remember how much it was maybe it was around five thousand dollars so we go into, I'm still playing with Ronnie McDowell. And of course the band is getting a lot tighter, you know, because we're playing out more when we can. So we go into the sound shop for like two days and we cut eight of the songs that ended up on uh, Picking on Nashville. And we released a little tape called Picking on Nashville. It was originally a cassette tape and we sold it around South Central Kentucky. And it got in the hands of Columbia Records and they started freaking out. And Larry Hamby, I believe is his name. He wanted to hear the band live. Yeah. So finally, we ended up playing at Douglas Corner, 1988, for Larry Hamby. And of course, by the time, and that very same night, uh, Leroy Parnell was showcasing for another label himself. <laughs> and uh, so when when Larry heard us, the band live at that time had changed. Into a more aggressive, he said, "Well, I don't really know what I can do with you guys because you guys sound more like a rock band live than what it sounded like on this tape. Because mm. the band, re the band really grew fast after we cut that. It just started, just started going. You know how bands do. Yeah, yeah. But, but the 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 kicker was that night, Harold Shedd for Mercury Records was there to see Leroy Parnell." Mm. And he didn't know we was even going to be there. Now, Leroy heard us, and he said, yeah, I heard you guys. I was sitting in the back room watching. He said, you guys sounded like heavy metal. I thought to myself, heavy metal bluegrass. <laughs> 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 he told me that years later. But Harold, Harold was just, he was knocked out. And he went up to Ricky and said, uh, you guys got a, any music? Ricky, Ricky was real frustrated. Ricky was frustrated at that time. He said, no, man, we never play. <laughs> you know, he was he was done with the whole thing. And, and Ricky said, here, take this cassette, which was taken on Nashville. And and he said, and, he said he, and, and Harold said, how often do you play? Ricky said, never, <laughs> which we did. <laughs> he was done with it. I love Ricky, that's, man. That's awesome. But he was fed up with the whole thing, the music business, you know. Yeah. And well, lo and behold, about a week later, Harold called. And uh, said, man, I'm really interested in this band. And man, it wasn't no time that the, the paperwork started going back and forth between the lawyers. 
We brought our old manager back from Itchy Brother Days, Mitchell Fox, back into the fold. And by uh, spring or, yeah, spring or early summer of 89, we'd signed the deal with Mercury Records. And in October of uh, 89, the album came out. You know, wow. it, it was a long journey, Johnny. Yeah. Well, it's you know, uh, it paid off. It paid off. And um, didn't that yeah. album have like uh, four consecutive top 40s singles it, from it? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was our most successful album. The, al- the album was really received well by rock and country. Right. You know, I mean, I've had people like... Paul Stanley from Kiss say, hey, man, we're listening to your album on the bus. <laughs> ah, that's so cool. And, it, and Billy Gibbons was easy top was handing out the album to different people. We found out later he was buying albums and giving them away. And then the country crowd loved it because we were just jabbing Nashville, you know, just doing our thing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and then, yeah, we had like four top ten singles. But, but the, there again, the band was growing into more of a southern rock thing. By the time we did our second album, the, the sound was more aggressive and we weren't as successful, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we kind of found our niche, what we do, which is a cross between blues and rock, a little southern rock. And um, and we have a following. We're able to tour. Of course, not right now. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. We've been able to, you know, to keep things going. We had a really good year last year. You oh, know, great. really did. Great. Yeah. yeah. Well, southern rock is kind of like... Uh... Would you say it's like a blend of blues, country, a little yep. bit, a little bit of soul in there too? You know, like Memphis soul. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's Real southern rock to me. Yeah, yeah. There, there's there's a lot of bands now. People are, you know, these young bands are coming out. Well, this is the new southern rock. Well, to me, without the country element, it can't really be right. what I call southern rock. Man, yeah. I think southern rock is a very good blend of rock, blues, country, and as you say, a little soul music. And even a little church, southern gospel music. Oh, yeah, absolutely, it, absolutely. You know, and um, so, yeah, so, you know, I mean, the Allman Brothers never considered themselves a uh, southern rock band, even though they spearheaded the whole movement, whether they want to admit it or not. But, you know, a lot of people attribute uh, Skinner as really the band that brought the southern rock movement into what we know as southern rock. And then when Charlie Daniels came out with The South's Gonna Do It Again, you know, uh, that was like what 1975. That that whole movement was like crazy. You know, right, right, through the roof. So we're we're kind of associated with that 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 genre more than anything anymore. You know, where early on I think the band had a lot more rockabilly. Even though we can do rockabilly, the band just kind of morphed into a little something more aggressive. I think live. Yeah, yeah. So when you when you guys hit that massive uh, success from that picking on Nashville. Uh, release and started touring i'd imagine extensively did uh did you feel like all of a sudden like uh you know we're massive rock stars and <laughs> this is never going to end or do, what, what was your mindset when this was happening i'm always curious about what an artist is going through uh when all of a sudden things have changed dramatically from what they were previously experiencing well absolutely it, it does change um well, I never, I have to be honest with you, uh, I've always been not pessimistic, but realistic about the music business. As you know, all good things do end, unless you're the, you know, well, even the Beatles could keep it together, what, 10 years or something like that? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, you know, 
when it happened, it really it went through the roof. I mean, yeah. literally, here we are winning, you know, group of the year, two years in a row, CMA, ACM. Uh, we won a Grammy. Yeah, no, that's, it, you can't get any higher than that. Only I can tell you, I remember after we won our second CMA award, I remember sitting at Upperland Hotel after the show, and I just knew in my heart that I'm going, you know, this is great, but I know at some point this is not going to really last at this magnitude anyway. Right, right. I'm surprised we've lasted that we're still together to this day. Well, I was going to you ask know. you the secret on that too, because uh, I know our listeners, uh, some of you are married, I'm sure, and uh, performing with a band is, is basically like having four different wives or however big your band is. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it can be difficult with the different personalities and stuff. How did you guys, um, do you guys all get along really, really well or? Well, we, we do. We fight like any other band. Yeah. If, you're, if you have a band, I mean, you get any group of musicians together, you know how it's going to work <laughs> at some point. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're just all big babies. Come on. We never quite grow up, right, <laughs> you right, know? Right, right. It's our excuse to stay kids for a long time. You know, we've been through a few changes, but yeah, it. it how do you keep things together? By the grace of God, only I can say. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know? that's, the, that's the best answer right there, yeah. <laughs> By the grace of God, I don't even know, man, you know? I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. There's been so many times I've laid in the bunk going, I've had enough of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not tired of the work. I'm just tired in the work, so to speak, yeah, you know? Yeah, for you know? sure. And I, said, and I mean, I, I know everything, it doesn't all last forever, but we have been so blessed to do what we've done for so many years. I mean, we went on the road in 89, uh, and before that was Ronnie McDowell. So, but we, we've had a good good run. Yeah, you know? yeah, no, it's great. Did you guys have that thing... Um... I remember talking to, uh, do you know Robert Reynolds from the Mavericks, by any chance? Yeah, sure he, it is. He's a, he's a big Buddy Holly fan, and he came on one of our tours once just for kicks. And uh, he was telling me that uh, in the early days when the Mavericks were doing well, that uh, they would come off those tours basically in debt. Like they're, by the yep. time the record company and the, the tour bus and the road hotel expenses, everything it would come down to like they owed the record company money. Did you, did you guys experience that too? Or was it different? Well, no, no, it was different. It was different oh, for us good. because our record, our record didn't cost anything to make. Picking on oh, national right. states, like, what happened? Of course. We, 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 we cut the first eight tracks on, oh, you know, we took uh, Jonathan's money that we got from him, $4,500, I think. We um, took the money recorded the songs and we released a little cassette and then when when Mercury signed us all they want us to do is go back and remix a few things tweak a few things and cut two new songs so our advance wasn't that much and really the album the first album did so well and so fast that we were out of you know that uh, really that we, we we weren't dead with them you That's know we've great. always made we always made royalties, even with the advances, you know. Oh, that's great. Uh, a little later on, <laughs> there's been, you know, a couple other labels we worked with, we still kind of wondered where the royalties went. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, Mercury's always been really good, man. We still get checks to this day. They're oh. not, you know, as you know, they're not as big as they were. Because sure. Of, 
screaming and things like that. But yeah, I know, I know Robert. I, I know that I know those guys because uh, they came right right after we. When did their first album come out? Ninety. I would say like ninety two or ninety three, maybe something around there. Ninety two. Yeah, yeah. Robert was the original. And we got to know those guys a little bit. Really good band, by the way. Yeah, Great band. yeah, yeah. Hey, how did you uh, how did you end up getting hooked up with Johnny Johnson? That's a uh, <laughs> uh, just a classic uh, blues piano player that was uh, Chuck Berry's piano player, of course, yep. and all the uh, famous recordings. How did you uh, get hooked up with him? By the grace of God, everything we do is by the grace. We're not smart enough. <laughs> uh, in uh, 90, let me think about this, 90, 92, let me make sure I know him. No, it might have been 91. I can't remember. It's just a little, little hazy now. Yeah, it's all right. But, well, you're exactly, we go to, we go to the Grammys. Okay, I think it was 91, actually. Actually, we go to the, the Grammys in New York. We're up for another one for Electric Barnyard, and we go to a Grammy party the night before, and we go in this room. And, and funny thing is, going up to the Grammy party on the bus, I had just bought Johnny Johnson's album he had just did called uh, Johnny B. Bad. Carrie Adams from NRBQ uh, produced it. Cool. Uh, Keith Richards was on it. Eric Clapton was on it. And the NRBQ was on it. And we were listening to it. We were just all marveling at it, going, oh, man, we love this. Yeah. You know? And, and so we go in this party and we see Johnny Johnson. So we behind we just we just make a beeline over to him, and and just start talking to him, and the managers are going, huh, huh. What if we put these? You know, they're probably thinking, what if we put these these guys together? Well, you know, uh, then the conversation gets going about doing an al- a joint album with Johnny Johnson, but unfortunately, it was supposed to happen in early '92, and that's when Ricky and Doug left. But the the two members that came in. Anthony Kenny and Mark Orr were really more suitable for that project. Uh, when they left, we were able to salvage the project. We did our own album. We did our album with a new lineup called. It was called Rave On, by the way. Oh, nice. <laughs> we didn't steal it from we we didn't steal from Buddy, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but hey, man, we we really should do Rave On. I don't know why we have. Yeah, to you guys that. should do that. That'd be a great one for you. I love. Uh, Oh yeah, man. Uh, so anyway, we Johnny's managers said, "Well, we just, you know, we they sent Johnny down to the practice house for a few days. We got together and it clicked. So we went to the studio in '92 and we recorded that'll work. And uh, it was just one of those things that just seemed to work. And we met him at the Grammy party uh, the year prior. You know, so cool. And, so uh, cool. You got to work with him. That's great." Oh, he was fabulous and such a great guy, Uncle Johnny. When he when he played with us, he made us play like men. Yeah, we we went from, we went from being a little southern rock, country honky tonk band to he would wherever you set the groove at. Yeah, when he started playing, he would pull that groove into a pocket that was just beautiful, man. Oh, where that's it sweet. needed to be. It's very sweet. He. he yeah, yeah. And I met Jeff Beck. I'd met Jeff Beck a, a few years before this, but in uh, 2015, my buddy Jimmy Hall was singing with Jeff Beck, and, and they were in Louisville, and I went to visit Jimmy. 
and I took one of the Johnny Johnson albums that with the second one we did, Meet Me in Bluesland. And Jeff came in the dressing room and I said, man, I'd like to give you this album. And, and I mentioned Johnny Johnson and he, he just lit up. It started like he was playing piano and stuff like that, you yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> and he started telling me a story how all the English guys said, well, we love Chuck, man, but we always love the piano behind Chuck Berry. Yeah. You know? well, someone, they love Johnny. Some would argue that, uh, you know, that Johnny Johnson and Johnny Be Good, that, I mean, that was... Apparently, I, I think there was a rift between him and Chuck Berry in the later days. Where, there was. Where uh, John oh, yeah. claimed that uh, he kind of created that whole yep. sound and, and the riff, you know, which I, you know. Yep. So. Oh, yeah. He's a yeah, lot yeah. more important than uh, some rock and roll people realize, I think, you know. Uh, yeah, he, he deserves a lot more credit. He did get uh, inducted into the Music Hall of Fame, you know, or yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the Rock Hall of Fame. And, but... Uh, yeah, a lot of folks don't realize how much Johnny contributed to Chuck's music. Chuck Chuck was a very smart man. Oh, yeah. Very, very brilliant man. Great, great. I mean, he could really, he, lyrically, he was amazing. Oh, totally. And he was very smart where he could he drew from country and R&B. Blues, yeah. And he came up with his, his thing of rock. And if you go back and listen to a lot of Louis Jordan, Louis Jordan, you can hear a lot of those. Uh, I can't think, think of the guitar player that played with Louis Jordan, man. A lot of those same intros came from this guy, yeah. you know, yeah. and Johnny Johnson and things like that. So Chuck Chuck was able to grab things here and there, make it his own thing. But yeah, Johnny deserved more credit and uh, never did quite quite work out for him. I'm not. Really, I think they went to court, but something just didn't work out. Yeah, his behalf. So too bad. Yeah. Well, while we're on uh, musicianship. Um... One thing that uh-huh. I think is really cool about your playing is, um, and that this is something my brother does really well, is uh, the dynamics of like lead versus rhythm guitar playing, like knowing when to, you know, uh, to lay back as a guitarist and then hit your little spots where it's where it calls for it, but doesn't overwhelm the song. I, um, I think that's a lot of budding guitarists when they're coming up, they they all want to, you know stretch their muscles, so to speak, and really yep. crank out their, uh, show off their riffs and stuff. But it's almost, it's almost like you have to refrain from that. Don't you feel like as a, as a, to be a really good guitarist, you have to know when it's appropriate to, uh, to play, uh, wildly, I should say. And, and then when to like play dynamically. Uh, well, absolutely. As you get older, you learn the art of playing, for the song, you exactly, know, yeah. the song being the song is really what it's all about. You know, we wouldn't have a job without a good song. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and the song is supreme. It's the king. Um, when I grew up, you know, I came up really when I started listening to music and really where it got my ear. Um, I, I remember hearing Chuck Berry, and I remember hearing Emily Brothers and Buddy Holly, and I love that stuff. It's 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 a, it's a foundation. But when, when, of course, '64 when the Beatles hit, the Beatles took that music, put their own little spin on it. Yeah. And what I always loved about George Harrison or Zally with the Love and Spoonful, who was a big influence, or any of those great bands. The, the guitar players always come up with these wonderful little riffs, you know, little hooks. Yes. Uh, which are really just as much part of the song than anything. And 
you know, it seemed like in those years, it was all about, uh, it really wasn't about uh, stretching out musically. That that came around 67 when Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, and then you had Alvin Lee with 10 years after, and different people hit. Then the, the guitar th- became a different animal at that point. Right, right. You know, and uh, I remember hearing Alvin Lee with 10 years after on Woodstock doing I'm Going Home. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I've never heard anybody play like this. Have you heard that version? Yes, I have. It's quite amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing for its for its day. It for was, its day, it was yeah. like I guess, it, yeah, yeah, for its day. It, it really was. And Alvin Lee played with a lot of soul. You know, he played every note he knew, but he really did it well. Yeah. And I guess I guess that's be the equivalent of somebody hearing "Eruption" by Eddie Van Halen, you know, in 1978 for the first time. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, it did change my uh, approach a little bit. But what what I, re- I I do believe my my lead playing, you know, I it's not that hard what I do at all, really. Uh, uh, I think not, you're being a little modest there, Greg. <laughs> well, it it the the thing I, I think I have my own sound. It's it's a tone. Yeah. But 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 I um, rhythm guitar, which I always used to downplay. I never really thought much about it. Which is stupid, because really, rhythm is more important than the lead, really. And, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I've really got more in the, to rhythm playing over the years um, and studied a lot of different styles, you know. And when I was younger, Johnny, I played, I, I didn't play gospel music. I played acoustic gospel, you know, I played acoustic guitar, which uh, Southern gospel is really just country music with different lyrics, you know. Sure. And I even played, I even played bass guitar in gospel bands, you oh, know, cool. things like that. So that all just comes into play in what I do now. But I, I do, I try real hard not to overplay and not play over the singer. It's so know? important. So and important. Been, it really is. I've been guilty of that. I've been guilty of that. When you're coming up, you, you learn, man, let the singer. Come on, support the singer. Yeah. Like I say, without a good song, we would not have a job anyway. Come on. It's man, a good way to know? put it. It's a good way. It should be like a, a quotation that, uh, you know, electric guitarists, when they're first learning how to play, that should be right above them. You know? Cause, <laughs> really? Really? Because, uh, really. And rhythm guitar and supporting the singer is really where it's at. And I'll tell you what, you cannot go wrong by studying Buddy Holly. Is there anybody did it any better than that guy? I mean, seriously. You yeah, know? he's great. It was just amazing the the age that he was and the, the amount of output he he put out for you know like what an eighteen month professional career and to have that kind of a variety in music is uh, amazing. Pretty pretty outstanding. Amazing. Yeah. Hey, let's, amazing, what's man. your uh, your radio show's called Lowdown Hoedown? Is that right? The Lowdown Hoedown. Yeah, I love it. I love uh, it. Now, where does it, where does a listener get to uh, tune into that? Okay, every Monday night, 7 to 10 Central Standard Time, you can down, uh, you know, in South Central Kentucky, it's on Terrestrial Radio, FM 93.3, but there is a radio app you can download uh, out of the App Store. Uh, just look up WDNS 93.3 radio, or D93. Okay. And and uh, you will be able to stream the radio station. And my my show is uh, like I say every Monday night seven to ten. And I've been doing the show at D ninety three for uh, oh over eighteen years now. Wow. And two and a half. Yeah, really. Uh, like to entertain people, play music for people, whether it's guitar or records, you know. 
And uh, it's just something I enjoy doing. I never get burnt out on it, you know, never do. That's really cool. I would love to uh, spin records sometime. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Hey, Greg, before we run out of time, I wanted to ask you uh, about your future projects. Do you have anything coming up yourself or the Headhunters? Well, um, the Headhunters will be going in the studio once this pandemic just settles down a little bit. There's a travel ban right now between Tennessee and, well, actually, the governor in Kentucky don't really want us going to Tennessee because uh, they've been a little bit more lax down there, supposedly. You know, oh, okay. And, and uh, I, supposedly, if, if you go to Tennessee, he wants everybody to be quarantined. You know, but <laughs> oh, <laughs> don't wow. Know. And you guys are going through a lot of this, too. I know oh, you yeah. are. Uh, so um, when Doug can do it, we were, we're going to get together. There's a studio here in Glasgow we record at. We're going we're gonna to record four or five songs as an EP and get that done. Cool. Um, I just did a project with my stepson, John McGee, and a, a bass player in um, Glasgow. It's done. We just got to figure out what we're going to do with it. Um, and I, yeah, I'm going to go back in and cut some more, maybe cut some instrumental things, maybe like some Freddie King type stuff, maybe. Yeah. You know, I want to do that. And plus, you know, really work on the radio show. Um, you know, and, and as you know, the, the uh, True Fire thing, uh, that's a new experience for me. Even though I did a Hot Licks video many, many years ago, the True Fire thing was a lot different, man. I mean, way more uh, detailed than what I did back in 1990, 91 sure. with Arlen Roth. So it's... Uh, you know, there's some things I want to pursue. I, I'm definitely, even at my age, I'm not ready to just quit. I'm ready. I'm no, no. Ready to do some more things, man. You know, I'm ready to uh, maybe do some instrumental things. Um, keep doing the headhunters as long as it feels right, which I feel like we'll we'll hang in there a bit longer. Just keep doing it. You know, that's what we do. Yeah, yeah. No, it's great for our listeners that don't know um, what True Fire means. It's a uh, it's a great. Mm-hmm. Uh, guitar uh, tutorial uh, video yeah. site, and uh, I think it's truefire.com. And definitely check out Greg's mm-hmm. uh, lesson there. It's uh, it's brand new, right? It's brand new released. Just released last month. It's called uh, Greg Martin's uh, Backcountry Blues. Oh, was it Backcountry Blues? <laughs> I'm like, I'm around. Backcountry Blues, and uh, it's basically our take on what blues music is, you know. Sure. And what I feel like, as much as I love Howlin' Wolf, B.B. King, and I love uh, B.B. King and people like that, there is just such an element of um, country music, you know, what what we do, you know, and... uh, so there, yeah, yeah. It's, it's what what it is. It's Kentucky backcountry blues. I knew I should have put Kentucky in there because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, right, right. So yeah, it, it's basically a you know a blues with a little bit country slant on it, so to speak. It's great. It's great to actually do uh, something we love to do, isn't it? I mean, that's the best thing. Um, yeah, and that's what I'm saying. You know, everybody has a calling, yeah, and a purpose, and when you find that, it makes things a lot easier, you know, because you have fun doing it. And when you get paid for it, it it's even, I don't even know how to describe it. Yeah. The, the thing is, we would still do 
we we both would still do music whether we got paid or not. We would have to do that. Oh you know? yeah, absolutely. You know because we love it. You know, we love but it, yeah. to get to get paid for it is just uh, or to make a living with it is, is a blessing, an immense blessing. You know, uh, like I say, when I started out doing it, I didn't wake up one day and say, "Well, I'm going to be a rock star or anything like that." I just I just knew I wanted to play guitar, and I also had a interest in radio. So, I mean, like yourself, you've done both, you've done acting and playing, yeah. you know, and, but those things go hand in hand together, just like radio and music, you know, there's different passages, you know, I, I had this thing in my mind one of these days, I wouldn't mind on public radio to do some type of guitar oriented show, you know, some kind, you know, That'd be great. got to figure it all out. Yeah. yeah. I'd love to do that. It really would. So. We just got to keep pushing forward, man. You yes. know, we're not. Yes, it's uh, there's no no reason to, uh, you know, fold up like you say. Like no reason, no, to, no reason to retire no. now. It's. Uh, oh no! I had some guy tell me last week said, "Man, that's just gonna make everybody have to just quit." I said, "No, I'm not gonna throw the towel in. We no just way. gonna have to be patient. Got to uh, be patient. Got to be patient." And uh, like you said earlier, that um, I think music keeps us all young. You know, it's. Uh, I feel like a kid, like you said, like. Even though I'm uh, I'm not a 14 or 16 year old anymore by any means, I still oh, God. I still have that spirit I, I have that spirit of uh, music like you know in me that uh, oh no you gotta you gotta do that you gotta keep you do a great job man oh, oh yeah thanks. I'll yeah. tell you I tell you uh, everything you did last year was great but when y'all done True Love Ways it it just made me very emotional oh uh, wow Alan. thanks that uh, that's a one oh my, god one of my favorites and uh just to have the actual orchestra on stage with us was uh <laughs> was really fun oh my god i was so impressed with that i, I mean really i just it, i posted i think i i, I video it you know a video oh that that's right yeah i'm glad you did that because uh nobody we didn't we, <sighs> We never get any footage uh, from orchestra situations like uh, that. Oh yeah! So that was great. I may actually put it up. I may put it back up here pretty soon. You know, because cool. uh, that, that, y'all done such a great job. All all of you guys, man. You oh, know, thanks. every one of you. Thanks, thanks. You know, we had a great time. It was so cool of you to come up afterwards too. We really uh, that really made our night for us. We were like, man, that was <laughs> so, so cool. <laughs> well, well, well. Again, I grew up. My, through my brother Gary, that's how I learned about Buddy Holly because we had some of the old choral records and yeah, I think we had some of the Brunswick stuff too, you know. And uh, and of course, by the time the Beatles hit, what man, the Beatles they were totally in the Buddy, you know, everybody, all oh, the yeah. English bands, a Buddy, of course, you know, Eric Clapton. That's the that's why them guys. That's why Eric Clapton went to a Strat. You know, he loved Hendrix, but they wanted the fifties model of the strat because of yeah. buddy holly yeah man. yeah and uh you know and we were able to forgive me but we played a uh, buddy holly festival in texas i know you've done this as well and oh I mean, no 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 wasn't it texas it was in uh, new mexico oh yeah we the Cl- to- clovis Mex- music festival yeah we went to clovis yeah because yeah. we went to the studio you've done that same i know you've done that same yeah we, uh, we did that once yeah it was great yeah and we did it uh, about uh, four or five years ago, and we were able to go to the studio. And you know that was a thrill to go to the the, the studio and check it out. And I bought that big box set. Uh, oh the yeah, big Buddy Holly box set. I've got that. 
you know. That's great. And uh, how did you get into Buddy Holly? What what triggered that? Um, you know why? It's this is kind of funny. It's because when I first was struggling with guitar, you know, when your fingers hurt and all that stuff, and yeah. uh, sure. it, I think Peggy Sue was like the only song that I could get through the entire song with, you know? <laughs> so and it was like, it was a song I could actually play and, uh, sing in front of somebody and not feel weird or like I was going to mess up. And, um, but I think that's what uh-huh. was a key of buddy's music. It was like, it's, it's like music that works. It just works. Like it, um, you could be in a, any scenario, like a bar or, you know, playing absolutely. For, you know, it, it's it very just, diverse. It works. It, 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 it um, uh surpasses any it surpasses any racial barriers too yeah that, yeah that, that everybody loves buddy holly everybody loved him you know yeah it's like uh actors will say something like a line a funny line is is actor proof if it's so so good that like even if you tried to mess it up it would still work and i th- i feel like buddy's music is the same way like uh oh it's beautiful man it just it's works beautiful. You know? the thing about buddy though it was one of those great uh Burgoo stews of taking blues country and rock and putting it together in that special way that he did, yeah, you know, and singing the way he did, and uh, you know the crickets they 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 were great all all his lineups. I mean, gosh, man, it's just amazing. What a what a story, what a story. And uh, when I saw you guys last year, it really really made me go back for for and because I when I was with Ronnie McDowell, I studied Buddy a bit. Then last year, I, matter of fact, I did a um, a radio show for about about a month. I, I went, I played some Buddy Holly, and I played Jerry Lee Lewis, Chuck Berry, and different cool. things. You know, went back. It's just good. You just got to keep doing what you're doing, man. Thanks, you know? thanks. Are you uh, just keep doing it? Uh, are you writing any original stuff? Yeah, I, uh, I actually uh, during this uh, staying at home thing, I, I've. Um, finishing up my next album of original tunes. I, I haven't put one out Good. since like 2000, gosh, eight or something like that. So okay. I okay. just kind of, uh, I'm kind of a lazy songwriter where I, I get a good idea with, and I get the first two verses and the chorus, and, yep. and then I don't finish the song for another year or something. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I hear you, man. But, uh, I hear you. I've been really, uh, I started working with this, uh, lady who's like a really great songwriter and she's just, kicks my ass she basically i'll send her the song the lyrics and she says you can mm-hmm. do better than this you gotta you gotta get some more poetry in this uh, line here and you're you're, you're telling you're not right. showing enough and uh so I, I i go back to the drawing board and uh, i'm pretty happy with uh most of the songs now so uh, i'm excited to release That's it right. yeah yeah so i'll get that out there so good for you man thanks good for thanks. you Man, I look forward to seeing you guys again. You know, we will all hook up again somewhere. Yeah. Next time, next time you guys can play the Strat. I'll make sure I get it up there early enough. And re- what what gauge strings you guys use? Ten through forty six. Well, no, for the um, for the buddy stuff, I find I, I got to do like twelve through fifty two just to get that. God, yeah, I guess you do. I you guess know, you just do, to get that kind of like piano wires. <laughs> no, know? you're right. You're right, and that's. That's the real man strings right there. Well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's hard to play. Uh, it's hard to bend those suckers, you know, uh, like uh, the John, Johnny Be Good at the end of the show or whatever. It's like, oh, <laughs> but. Uh, ah, no, man. I know. I know. But I get I get totally what you're doing here, you know. Oh, thanks. Thanks, man. Hey, Greg, that was uh, fantastic. Thank you so much for all your time and your great stories. And uh, 
I wish you the very best and folks can uh, look forward to some more Kentucky Headhunter shows and your own solo projects and uh, check out your True Fire lessons as well. And uh, gosh, I look forward to seeing you soon, Greg. And we will. We'll hook up. We'll hook back up. We really will. You know. Awesome. Thank you so much. We'll Greg. jam one of these days. Yeah, one of these days we'll have a big jam it. session. Let's jam. Okay. <laughs> I'll brush up on my buddy Holly and my rockabilly and my, my old rock and roll. And uh, I'll try to hang with you guys. Sounds good. And you can show me some of those great uh, blues uh, slide riffs too that you do. I love those. I'll show you anything. Anything I do, it won't take you no time to figure it out. You'll have it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Greg. I really appreciate it. Thank you. God bless. You too. Bye-bye now. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen, Greg Martin. What a great guest. What a cool guy. Some great stories. Hey, that uh, show that he does, The Lowdown Hoedown, is on WDNSFM.com if you want to stream it on the internet. If you're local to the Kentucky area, it's 93.3. And you can also, as Greg said, get it on the App Store. Look for D93 for that app to be able to uh, stream it on your phone. I apologize, ladies and gentlemen, for the... Um, Snap, crackle, and pop of that feed uh, was probably my fault. I just didn't have a good level set for him. But uh, he was such a great guest that I, I thought it was worth hearing anyway. So I hope you just imagine you were listening to an AM radio <laughs> on that particular uh, interview. Anyway, I, I want you all to uh, take good, good care, ladies and gentlemen. Until the next time, we'll see you on Down the Line. 